When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Stiff and cold, their heart's blood dyed its every fold. Then raised the scarlet standard high. Within its shade we live and die. Though cowards flinch and traitors sneer, we'll keep the red flag flying here. Most modest of all demands is the we want the act. And that uh, indicates that, the, as far as the Communist Party is concerned, we want a completely new society. In other words, uh, we hope to see a day when the old trade union slogan, at least, of one for all and all for one becomes a reality. The words of Mikko Reardon, General Secretary of the Communist Party of Ireland, and before him, the song called The Red Flag, a symbol of international communism and written by an Irishman, Bill Connell, in 1889. Between them, they span a long history of Irish communist activity, but it's a history that sees today's Communist Party of Ireland not as a major force, but as a tiny political grouping. Its membership is no more than a couple of hundred, and its electoral support is minute. However, the tradition of the Communist Party traces the course of modern Irish history, dating back not just to the turn of the century, but right back to Karl Marx, who died 100 years ago this month. For Karl Marx, the father of communism, was a student of Ireland and a writer on Irish affairs, as historian Cormac O'Grada explains. The most important thing he wrote on Ireland is a section of a chapter in Das Kapital, which uh, is an analysis of post-famine economic development in Ireland. Uh, What puzzled Marx was why, despite the big drop in population, it seemed to him, in any case, living standards were not improving that dramatically. And he dealt with Ireland as a case study uh, of the development of capitalism. In subsequent years, Marx wrote extensively on Ireland, as evidenced by his many unpublished notes and drafts of speeches dealing with the topic. But his colleague and friend, Frederick Engels, also shared an interest in Irish affairs. In 1844, Engels discussed the Irish in Manchester in his now famous book, The Condition of the Working Class. He also lived with an Irish woman whose name was Byrne, and when writing to Marx from Ireland in 1856, he described the condition of our working people. They have been crushed politically and industrially. By consistent oppression, they have been artificially converted into an utterly impoverished nation and now, as everyone knows, fulfil the function of supplying England, America, Australia, etc. with prostitutes, casual labourers, pimps, pickpockets, swindlers, beggars and other rabble. Later, in 1869-1870, Engels went on to write a history of the Irish working class. In fact, he even took lessons in the Irish language. And, between them, Marx and Engels published extensively on Irish conditions and the Irish question. But their interest wasn't just academic. It also had practical effect. In 
1870, Marx and Engels uh, went to some meetings of the Amnesty Movement, which was a movement to free Fenian prisoners. And at one or other of those meetings, met up with a Fenian, a rather prominent Fenian, called Joseph Patrick MacDonnell. And they handpicked MacDonnell to be the Irish representative of the International Working Men's Association, against some opposition from uh, part of the English membership who were hostile to the Fenians. Ultimately, MacDonnell was to attend about 30 meetings of the International in London in 1871 and 1872. And in the spring of 1872, it was finally decided that the time was ripe to export the International to Ireland. It met with some initial success in Dublin and in Cork, which were quite agitated industrially at the time. However, um, fairly soon, the delegation met with a good deal of opposition, particularly clerical and um, journalistic opposition. And uh, the end of the story was that after some uh, riots and troublesome meetings in Cork, the delegation was run out of the city. And that was the end of MacDonnell, Marx and the International in Ireland. In the years afterwards, socialist groupings did exist indeed under various titles, but they attracted few members. Then, of course, in 1896, James Connolly's Irish Socialist Republican Party was started and James Larkin began the Transport Union and was also to organise many strikes, for example, in 1908 and 1913. And these strikes brought working-class protest to the streets of Dublin. Yet, despite this working-class action, it could hardly be said that the Irish people at the time were ripe for revolution, as Mick O'Reardon of the Communist Party explains. Well, the Irish people weren't philosophically revolutionary, but the conditions of the 1908 strike began by Larkin, the, which climaxed in the strikes which developed further in Belfast. Uh, the 1908 one was in Cork, by the way, the, the other was in Belfast, with the climax taking place in the great 1913 struggle. And uh, for the first time, uh, our people got leadership. And uh, I think it's very well documented, and I think probably with all the credit due to RTE, the Stumper City gives an excellent picture of the conditions of that period, uh, that uh, the personality of Larkin and the, the capacity of leadership of Connolly uh, gave our people a vision, a vision of a future which they probably didn't understand was socialism, but it was socialism. And uh, the fact that uh, our people were able to sort of solidly unite and uh, the the struggle itself in 1913 wasn't just peculiar to Dublin, it gripped the imagination of many people. There is a record, as you know, the famous dispatches uh, written by Lenin, not from Dublin, but from abroad in Switzerland, uh, dealing with the 1913 strike and his analysis of it and his sort of assessment that it had been a very decisive class revolutionary action. Uh, you get it expressed in some symbolism, for instance, like the the Fintanaro Piper's Band, which still exists today, and I don't know whether they still have the red feather on their hat, but that red feather uh, found its origin, in case any of the pipers are listening at the moment, that it found its origin in the this band which paraded and led the, white, the strikers' demonstrations in 1913. So the colour red was very much associated with the 1913 strike. <laughs> Near, I want it 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 near, I want
Following 1913, the Socialist Party of Ireland slid into decline. James Connolly was now concerned with the affairs of the Citizen Army and his attention was diverted to the events that were to take place in Easter 1916. But then in 1917 came a dramatic event when the Russian proletariat rose up in revolution. The struggle is immortalised in history as the October Revolution of 1917 and its effects were truly international. here in Ireland was that in, in the, uh, the, it was greeted by a celebration meeting, public meeting at the Mansion House and the speakers included people like Willem O'Brien and others. It was hailed by Cahill O'Shannon who was one of the great personalities of the Labour movement at that time. It was greeted by the Irish Trade Union Congress and perhaps even more significant than that was that one year afterwards in 1918 when the occasion of the first anniversary which allowed 12 months for the, the Western imperialist propaganda machine to work to depict the sort of the struggle in Russia as the, 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 the revolt of savages rather than the working people, and generally presented the start of picture of barbarian sort of struggling in, uh, into power. That this was uh, the celebration event was announced, and it was banned by the British government in Ireland, but nevertheless, red flags did appear. Uh, in various parts of Dublin, they had to be removed by the police. So, if you like, there was a clandestine uh, celebration of the of the first anniversary of the Russian October Revolution in 1918, organised by the Socialist Party. So that showed you that uh, here was the sort of again the constant appreciation and understanding what took place in Russia. And that reaction to the 1917 revolution wasn't the end of the story. In subsequent years, more was to come. This was followed, as you know, then later on, of course, by other events. The creating of Soviet, the not long creamery, uh, where the workers, they took over the factory and they put up a big banner saying, we make butter, not profits. And uh, that's a historic slogan, by the way. And I think as well that people in this day and age should probably contemplate, more, contemplate a bit more on it. Uh, you have the raising of the red flag by the unemployed workers over the rotunda, in which uh, Liam O'Flaherty, the writer, who is still very much alive and kicking, played a commanding part. And here and there, toward different parts of the country, for instance in Cork Harbour, the, the Cork Harbour employees also raised the red flag and took over the offices of the Cork Harbour commissioners. So this was all a result of the, of the, um, the influence of the October Revolution, and the fact that it struck a very sympathetic chord amongst the working people. So the cause of socialism in Ireland had truly taken root. And in 1921, Roddy Connolly established the first Communist Party of Ireland. However, its membership was tiny and most of the potential support was going to the Larkin movement, which was now organising strikes, demonstrations and mass activities. So the Communist Party was simply going nowhere and it was disbanded in 1924. Throughout the rest of the 20s, communists supported alternative socialist groups and by the 1930s, their activities were becoming reasonably successful. 
One of their best organised activities was in the Castlecomer Mines, where they set up a workers' union in 1930, the purpose being to win better wages and working conditions from the mine owners. One of the miners explains why he joined the union. I saw myself as a, as a slave, and I would be prepared to do anything to change the conditions under which I was working. I didn't care who they were that had helped me at the time, but I'd be, that was my personal opinion at the time. Yet there was widespread resistance to this new communist-inspired trade union, and members found it difficult to sell copies of their paper, The Irish Workers' Voice, in the face of local clerical criticism. I remember one Sunday morning, Father Cavan was below here and uh, came to give out, and I remember that morning that... He came and attacked left, right and centre. Says they're on they're above in the porch now, he says, with a bundle of them under their arm, you see. And uh, I saw one vice that Sunday morning. Stood outside the chapel gate with him, off three attacking and all. And he only sold one. They wouldn't take him from me. Nevertheless, by 1932, the union proved highly successful. In that year, it took some 400 miners out for six weeks, and the strikers secured the bulk of their demands. But immediately came a reaction that was to appear time and again in the following decades, namely an anti-communist outburst from a Catholic bishop. The words were those of Dr Collier, Bishop of Ossery. A few weeks ago, our city and the industrial areas of the country shared in a communistic push, organised practically in every country. It was on a small scale, but it was real, and had the marks of the beast. We had the secret inspiration from headquarters, the paid agitator, the preaching of labour unrest, the veiled incitement to looting and rioting. We also had the irreligious part of the communist programme, which denies the divinity of Christ. And that sort of church reaction was to be found not just in County Kilkenny, but elsewhere in the country as well. For example, in Dublin, Father Keneally was known for his rather severe anti-communist sermons at the pro-cathedral. And one night in March 1933, following one of his sermons, some of the congregation marched on Connolly House, the then headquarters of the communists. Sean Nolan, you were in the Communist Party headquarters at the time. Can you explain to me what happened? Yes. I was in, on the premises uh, and I heard noise in the distance, not to, in the distance, and I uh, went out to see what was wrong and I saw a crowd approaching. I saw a closed door of the Connolly House and they came battering at it, came along and then they started battering at the door and uh, then they... Uh, smashed the window of the ground floor shop and took out some of the literature that was in it and burned it on the street. 
the uh, police came along later, uh, but uh, they really did not attempt to clear away the, the uh, hooligan elements. These attacks on Connolly House continued for several nights, resulting in considerable damage to the building. Yet despite such hostility, the communist activists continued to organise, and some months later, again in 1933, the Communist Party of Ireland was reformed. Its membership was centred in Dublin and Belfast, and there was just a trickle of members in places such as Cork, Waterford and Longford. But the hostile social atmosphere was no longer the only problem confronting this new Communist Party. Instead, there was a whole new political movement growing up in the early 1930s. It was violently anti-communist and it was called fascism. Mick O'Reardon. You had fascism very strongly entrenched in a whole number of countries. Uh, Mussolini was in Italy from about the late 20s, of the early 20s. Uh, you had Salazar in Portugal. You had Admiral Horty in, in, in uh, Hungary. You had uh, the uh, UNESCO and the Iron Guard in Romania. You had very strong uh, actual fascist states in all of Europe. So it was a rather sharp period. And um, in our country, you had the sort of the rise of the blue shirt fascist movement. Is, is not just simply an Irish phenomenon dealing with the whole question of the loss of the British market. Of course, it had its origins in that, but its inspiration came from outside. And uh, I've quoted this before, of course, and I don't know whether I'm allowed to mention names, but you can probably edit it out in the course of a thing. Uh, the famous statement of John A. Costello in the Dáil in 1934, when he said, and I have quoted this so often, I have it completely memorised, that the, the blue shirts, the fascist, the brown shirts have triumphed in Germany, the black shirts have triumphed in Italy, and so assuredly will the blue shirts be victorious in Ireland. So there was the linking up of the sort of the three shop movements of uh, fascist Italy, Nazi Germany, and the incipient sort of right-wing uh, fascism in Ireland at that period. But it was fascism in a different country, namely Spain, that was to capture the attention of Irish communists later on in the decade. In February 1936, the Spanish left-wing government was elected and this was followed in July by the revolt of the Franco generals. It was to result in civil war and a new sound was to be heard throughout Europe, namely the sound of death and destruction. In that situation, uh, there was a challenge to the left in Ireland that we, our country and our people were represented by being pro-Franco and uh, therefore the challenge was we had to go to Spain to assist the Republican government primarily in order to not only fulfill an international duty but to redeem, as we would thought of, the good name of our people that had been introduced by those who uh, took openly the side of the fascist Franco forces in Spain. How many went? Roughly about 182 people went in different times and different groups and so on. And uh, while the over 60, 70 were killed, died, and uh, this was typical of the sort of rate of casualties and the ranks of all those who went in different countries from the formed international brigades in Spain. Throughout the period 1936 to 1938, Irish communists continued to devote their energies to the struggle against fascism in Europe. They died in cities like Madrid and Cordova, and when the remainder returned to cities like Dublin and Cork, they found a Communist Party depleted, poorly organised and on the verge of extinction. 
Things were bad enough, but then in 1939 came a hammer blow, namely Britain's declaration of war against Germany. And Eamon de Valera addressed the Irish nation. You know from the news bulletins to which you have been listening that the great European powers are again at war, that this would be the end has appeared almost inevitable for months past. Such an escape as we had a year ago could hardly be expected to occur twice. Yet, until a short time ago, there was hope. But now hope is gone, and the people of Europe are plunged once more into the misery and anguish of war. The advent of war was to compound the Irish Communist Party's difficulties. It had members in the north and south of the country, and now, of course, Britain was seen as an ally of the Soviet Union in the fight against Hitler. It was to cause friction between the two branches of communists, northern and southern, and as Belfast communist Andy Barr points out, strains began to appear in the party. We had many discussions within the party there, there were some within our party in the north who, for instance, advocated uh, that the ports of Ireland should be available to the British forces. And uh, that, of course, couldn't be accepted by many of our comrades within our party. And uh, really what we developed towards was that the best solution in this difficult situation was that the 26 counties should remain neutral. That should be our attitude. And that the comrades who were uh, situated in the north should weigh in with the war effort against fascism. So two different approaches to war resulted and that brought about two different attitudes from communists in Ireland. Meanwhile, northern communists were thriving. After all, the war effort was generating a boom for northern industry and consequently membership expanded. In contrast, in the South, membership declined and the inevitable happened in July of 1941 when the branch was suspended as a political unit. So the cause of Irish communism was now focused north of the border and that cause flourished, especially after the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. We had uh, friendly references to the Soviet Union. We had references to the democracy existing within the Soviet Union. Uh, the fact that uh, those who wanted to practice their religion could freely do so. Uh, all that type of thing came over. And quite suddenly, uh, we hadn't the same hostility uh, to the Soviet Union and to communism as had been apparent in the pre-war years. And in that situation, plus the fact that employment had improved to a tremendous extent, Trade union movement grew, and with it uh, a militant attitude to work on to problems, and uh, an opening of minds to other ideas. And in that situation, the Communist Party in the North uh, grew considerably. In fact, the growth was so dramatic that thousands of people would attend many communist meetings. And at elections, party members won respectable, if not indeed effective, support. So it was all disappointing for northern communists that things were so bad south of the border. Well, yes, it was disappointing, all right. But I think understandable in the circumstances. The, the communists were up against a very difficult situation. 
And uh, I think one thing I should make clear is that they didn't cease to uh, operate politically. Uh, they went into the organizations of the people and continued their work and uh, kept uh, politics alive, uh, circulating the Irish workers' voice on a weekly basis, uh, continually holding meetings and producing the Irish socialists, and in that way keeping uh, some politics alive uh, within the 26 counties. And, indeed, that spark of communist politics refused to die in the South. In fact, three years after the end of the war, in 1948, a new Marxist-Leninist group was launched in Dublin. It was called the Irish Workers' League, and it contained many former members of the Communist Party of Ireland. There were bad times, however, and at that period, much anti-communist abuse was being levelled at one well-known Soviet politician. The name was Joseph Stalin. In fact, the reaction to Stalin had already produced the declaration of a Cold War, historic words indeed that emanated from Winston Churchill. And this Cold War that was now being waged with the Soviet Union whipped up a new phase of anti-communist hysteria. It was personified in the figure of the communist witch-hunter, United States Senator Joseph McCarthy. There is only one issue as I can see it. There's one great evil which all of the lesser evils flow in this country. The lesser evils such as the as high taxes, inflation, the absence of so many of our of the husbands, sons, and brothers in the service, and that is the suicidal, Kremlin-directed foreign policy, the extent to which it's controlled by communists in our government. McCarthyism, of course, wasn't confined just to the United States. It spread throughout Europe and it poisoned the minds and the attitudes of thousands of God-fearing people who now lived in dread of the communist threat. And here in Ireland, the left-wing activists bore the brunt of this new anti-communism. Despite that fact, they contested the general election in 1951 and for candidate Mick O'Reardon, there were many problems. One could not, as one can do now, nominate oneself to be a candidate one had to get a proposer and a seconder who lived in the particular constituency uh, and who would propose and second you. We had difficulties to get a proposer because we felt that uh, it would be unfair to put people's jobs at risk and so on. We had to think of that, but uh, eventually we got one proposal in the character of the famous Brendan Bean, uh, who nominated me for the 1951 elections. And uh, the uh, circumstances in which he nominated me, of course, was... Uh, rather shaky because we arrived at the, the actual uh, nomination to the returning officer and the staff in that day and we had a very shabby, dirty, porter-soaked ballot paper which we had just recovered from Brendan and we hadn't time to get a fresh one. And uh, we presented this and uh, when we presented it we could feel the sort of, uh, as I said at the time, this most uh, pernicious and vicious of all opposition the respectable kind, that the returning officer, not the returning officer, but the, the one of the officials in the returning officer office just looked at it with disgust, and then proceeded to check it against the registrar to see that it was correct, that Brendan Bean was the name of the person who signed the nomination for paper. At 70 Kildare Road was the correct address which he gave, which appears in the ballot paper. But it transpires that in the actual register of electors, uh, Brendan Bean was listed as Brendan Francis Bean, and of course, they declared the ballot paper illegal, and we had to get another ballot paper signed under the most extraordinary circumstances later on. 
But uh, this was the perhaps the one incident. The other was that uh, the Archbishop McQuaid uh, issued a statement which was read at all masses before the election that anybody who would uh, vote for me in this election would be guilty of mortal sin. And that comment by Archbishop McQuaid became a catchphrase of the opposition to O'Reardon throughout the election campaign. And indeed, the statement was taken up and truly exploited by a prominent and influential newspaper. The Standard was the name of the paper, but they themselves, uh, verbally and otherwise, called themselves the Catholic Standard. Uh, and it was adopted the sort of McCarthyite technique of publishing the names of people, addresses of people, and in our case of publishing photographs of our people coming to meetings and giving them the list of places where they worked in order to incite uh, their dismissal from jobs. And this continued on uh, weekly, you know, a sort of a, uh, an expose, as they would call it, of communism in Ireland. And uh, when the Archbishop uh, said that you can't vote for uh, myself because uh, this would be a mortal sin, they had a, a huge poster which put the standards heading on it, you can't vote for Red or Raven. But uh, most of our pre-election activity was knocking out that T in Kant. So the, unwittingly, the Catholic standard was advocating, you can vote for Red O'Raven in that election. Well, history, I'm afraid, will tell you that the tactic failed to work. Mick O'Reardon wasn't elected, and throughout the 1950s, communists continued their small-scale, slow and unimpressive progress. In fact, they continued to operate under a title called the Irish Workers' League, which survived until 1962, when it then became the Irish Workers' Party. And it wasn't until March of 1970 that communists north and south of the border decided to again reform the Communist Party of Ireland on an all-Ireland basis. Of course, things had changed by then. McCarthy was gone, for example. The witch hunts were over. In the church, Pope John XXIII was propagating a new and more liberal pastoral message. And indeed, the space shot of Yuri Gagarin illustrated the technological supremacy of the Soviet Union itself. Yet even with those changes, the Communist Party could still boast of only a tiny membership. Perhaps four or five hundred, they won't say. And part of the problem was that the party was clinging too closely to the Soviet model of socialism and had failed to develop a model suited to Irish conditions in the 1960s and 70s. Former Communist Party member Sam Nolan. The general opinion of people, and working class people in particular, was that what the Communist Party was attempting to achieve in this country was the creation of a, a, a Soviet model of socialism. Now, maybe they would deny that, but by and large that was the popular image that they did project. And it did appear to many people that that wasn't the type of model of socialism that would be in tune with the traditions of the country and the traditions even of the trade union movement. Uh, the whole tradition of the country and of the trade union movement was one of fairly liberal democratic decision making and so on and it did appear that uh, if you had a communist party in a one party state that the question of democracy and freedom was rather uh, circum circumscribed uh, and this was a key question and still is a key question uh, for the communist party. But that's still only part of the problem. Whatever model of socialism the Communist Party came up with, they were still faced with one major difficulty, and that was the ability of parties like Fianna Fáil in the 1960s and 70s to continually accommodate the needs of the working class. Yeah, well, Fianna Fáil was always a party, I suppose somebody has uh, described it as a populist party. Uh, they seemed to represent all classes in society, and they seemed to... 
it's like the boat being lifted on the tide. They projected the idea that you lifted everybody, uh, that there was no class divisions in the country, and the working class people seemed to see Fianna Fáil as the, the party that had uh, initiated the development of social welfare benefits. They initiated in the late 30s and in the 40s and 50s a housing programme and so on. And it appeared that Fianna Fáil were the party that uh, did actually get things done for ordinary working class people. That's how the, the, the image came about and, uh, and came across to people. They saw no real alternative party on the left in those days. The, the, the Labour Party did continue to uh, have uh, a certain minimum support in the country. There was always maybe 15, 16, uh, up to 20 Labour deputies in the dial at one time or another. But by and large, the mass of the working class continued to vote for a party like Fianna Fáil. So again, the Communist Party lost out. And in fact, throughout the 1960s, Fianna Fáil improved their position following Sean Lamass's policy of industrialisation. It created new jobs and new prosperity, but it can equally be argued that it created a new working class. However, yet again, the Communist Party was organisationally unequipped to tap this new source of support. The problem was really that the Communist Party didn't exist outside Dublin in a small group in Cork. And they really hadn't the means of reaching out to these new work, industrial working class people who were in these new industries. And uh, they just didn't have the way and means of uh, reaching them in a political sense. Uh, that was basically the problem. They never really got to them. And there were even more problems than that, especially concerning the type of members who were being attracted to the party. In the 1970s, for example, the Labour Party and Workers' Party, who were then called Official Sinn Féin, won support from intellectuals and people with influence and power. Fair enough, the Communists held some key trade union positions, but they got almost no further than that. They never seemed to be able to uh, draw towards them people of influence in society, that's intellectuals, yes, people who would be writers, broadcasters, philosophers, whatever. Uh, they never seem to be able to draw these people towards them and uh, probably get them to join the Communist Party, with some notable exceptions. But by and large, that's true. They didn't do that. And possibly because of this, they weren't able to influence uh, society as, as, as they could have influenced them, had people in these key positions. There was, however, one area where communists took a leading and influential role, and that was in the civil rights movement of the late 1960s in Northern Ireland. But despite winning some acclaim, the fact is that the people involved were never really seen as Communist Party representatives. They did it as individuals. The party was never seen, in my opinion, as a party uh, giving leadership. Uh, to the whole movement in the north of Ireland. Individual members were in certain key positions at certain times, but it was never reflected in support for the Communist Party as such. And so, with that backdrop of problems, the Communist Party emerged from the 1960s and 70s as a small and ailing party. You can ask them to divulge the size of their membership, you'll get no answer though, but they won't deny that it's about a couple of hundred. The reasons for that are many, but as Mick O'Riordan explains, the legacy of Catholic Church reaction to communists has been part of the problem in the past. Yes, it uh, spread apart in the um, sort of um, creating prejudice against the communist movement in presenting a distorted uh, image of the communist movement. In many cases, exploiting the sincere religious beliefs of people as against the communist movement. 
But I then, as I think I pointed out earlier, that the church is changing. And the, the church of today is different from the church of Pius XII, uh, which wouldn't allow you to even talk to a communist on the pain of mortal sin, or to read a communist paper on the pain of mortal sin. So, I mean, there's a change, and there's a change which is shown particularly in the concern of the church in Ireland today with events that are taking place in Latin America, where there's a classic uh, uh, confrontation between the, social, the forces of social and national liberation against the forces of American imperialism. So the church can find itself on the same side as communists occasionally, and this is the transformation. But whatever these changes, there are other problems that can explain the small size of the Communist Party today. Again, Mick O'Riordan. Other impediments, of course, have been the, uh, the, the makeup of the social makeup of our country, the weakness of the working class, the fact that uh, our um, uh, people who live in the land became sort of landowners, uh, which created the sort of concept of what they have, we know was theirs, and very reluctant, very conservative to make changes. But uh, they will, as they think in the process of time, find as the capitalist system is collapsing, and it's collapsing even under the very well-regulated, or attempted well-regulated conditions of the common market, uh, that the conditions of the people on the land, of the small farmers, etc., etc. They won't be in danger of being confiscated by communists, they'll be in danger of being confiscated by the capitalist. And this is what has taken place. But uh, when you look at it all, the whole sort of conditions in our country, there is the third one. The fact that we yet haven't solved the national question. Because it's not only the question of the Communist Party being weak, it is also the fact that the Labour Party is being weak. And this has turned itself inside out to make itself respectable and appear respectable, but nevertheless uh, has lacked that sort of um, basis that exists in other countries for a strong social democratic movement. And I think it's the combination of the three, the question of the, the anti-socialist prejudices generally generated. And you know yourself from the Labour Party, history of the Labour Party, they're scared stiff if anybody ever accuses them of being a communist. You see, they lie down rather than stand up to it. Uh, on the question of the, uh, the, the economic and social uh, structure of our people, and on the question of the national question, these are the three factors. And on the, we have the labour movement, which says that the labour movement must be in the vanguard of the struggle for national independence and must face up to this question and could lead to the whole, of the, whole, the whole of our working people and indeed of many sections of these the sort of smaller industrialists, the smaller farmers, the smaller sort of shopkeepers, etc., etc. And after such time as then we will have the sort of the this sort of extraordinary situation where um, the labour movement is weak, despite the fact that all the social conditions cry out for a strong labour movement. Whatever the cause for the lack of communist support in Ireland, there still remains that question as to the policies that the party are now capable of offering. It can be said that there's some public understanding of the programmes of other socialist parties, such as the Workers' Party and the Labour Party and so on, but when it comes to the Communist Party, well, ignorance is bliss. So briefly, what's the party's official objective today? Well, it's funny you ask me that question, because that question was more or less answered by Connolly, not only in... in um and warns, but also invests. When he said, all we want is the act. Most modest of our demands is the, we want the act. And that uh, indicates that, the, as far as the Communist Party is concerned, we want a completely new society, a fundamentally different new society, uh, which will be as different as chalk is from cheese. 
in contrast to the present society where you have unemployment, where you have the uh, stilted uh, cultural opportunities, and uh, where not only you have the sort of social uh, conditions different, but also you have a moral transformation in the attitude of people to each other. In other words, uh, we hope to see a day when the old trade union slogan, at least, of one for all and all for one becomes a reality. Now, this is not a dream. It was a time when it was a dream. Uh, it was a time when people like St. Thomas More now, by the way, uh, uh, by the way, and before I discuss that, I can't refrain from pointing out that the only place in the world where St. Thomas More is commemorated is in the Kremlin Gardens of Moscow in a monument unveiled by Lenin, actually. His name is inscribed in that of many others, the utopian socialist. But uh, we believe that there can be a society in which the uh, people can live as human beings with respect uh, an entirely concept of fraternal relationships uh, instead of existing under the social the socialist system of uh, the social system of called capitalism whereas the case of it's the weakest of them all whereas the 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 strongest of the people who emerge there is no consideration for the weak and that therefore this is our sort of conception of an island which as we say in our party slogan would be free united and socialist and when we say socialist, we mean it in the sort of, if you like, the spiritual as well as the material terms of which complete society. Only time will tell the future of the Communist Party of Ireland. It's easy to write off any political party, but it's always foolish to presume that there's no foundations for future support or success. Communists look to history and claim with confidence that their time will come. And even in Ireland, the couple of hundred Communist Party activists live with their hopes for the future. And the origin of those hopes can be found where we started, namely in the legacy of Karl Marx, who died 100 years ago this month. I think Marx has uh, left his imprint in Irish history insofar as he's influenced, and did basically influence Connolly, uh, who in time left his influence on, on the Irish labour movement, and who I believe has yet to emerge as the full influencing figure that he can be in the future of the Irish labour movement at a time where we have the almost uh, catastrophic, we're on the eve, I think, of almost catastrophic uh, decline in uh, social conditions in our country. Uh, we're on the, in many senses, on the eve of the sort of, the moral degeneration of society. You can see this in the way in which brutality is accepted as a sort of a normal thing. And I think it is in these conditions that the working class, and this is what I always like about Connolly, because Connolly and Marx were one thing, Marx showed theoretically that the working class were the grave diggers of capitalism. They were the people who were going to make the great change uh, in society. And Connolly points out in his labor and Irish history that the working class, and I quote him by the way, he said, I quote, only the working class remain as the incorruptible inheritors of the Irish struggle for freedom, unquote. And this I think is the destiny of our working people to be the ones who will eventually solve the Irish question, the national question, and transform the social system of our country. Shade we live and die, though cowards flinch, 
and traitor sneer, we'll keep the red flag flying here. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.